morning. Please stand up and join us in some worship. All righty, here we go. My name's Don Anderson, and I am uh, a helper here at Liberty Lake Church. I think. First of all, uh, I'm supposed to do announcements this morning, and I've read this a lot, but I read it this morning. We, we live in tough times. You know, I, 
man, elections, politics, uh, COVID, COVID related. You go to the store and everybody's in a mask. It's hard to recognize people. It's just, it's just weird time. So I just wanted to start the announcements with this. Romans 9. I'll call nobodies and make them somebodies. I'll call the unloved and make them beloved. In the place where they yelled out, you're nobody, they are calling you God's living children. Matthew, referring back to Isaiah, said, Isaiah maintained the same emphasis. If each grain of sand on the seashore were numbered and the sum labeled and the sum labeled chosen of God, they would be numbers, still not names. Salvation comes by personal selection. God doesn't count us. He calls us by name. Arithmetic is not his focus. So I hope that's an encouragement. I do. Yesterday we had the return, and that was a call to prayer and now I, I can't remember. Thomas told me yesterday, what was it, repent? Pray? Revival. Pray, repent, and revival were the key phrases that came out of there. And uh, it was cool. It was cool honoring God. Uh, some of you were there. Carl and Pam were there. Uh, it was just, I tell you, it was neat stuff. And what overwhelmed me was there were so many people there that were, I mean, I got excited like a little kid at a birthday party, um, all focused on the same thing, all focused on the exact same thing. And yet there was, uh, there was a few people that kind of scared me, so I stood by Dean because he's big, <laughs> but I'm kidding. But there was, there was guys coming in on their motorcycles. There was um, elderly people, <laughs> I mean really elderly, struggling to get in from their cars and get up the ramp and get into that, that arena. I mean, it was so cool. All called for the same purpose and the same cause to do exactly that. And I knew that, and I'm going to pick on Thomas again. <laughs> there you go. The return will return next year. But Thomas came out of that speedway arena like a 16-year-old kid. He was pumped. He was excited. He said it was the best afternoon he's had in ages. So anyway, good stuff. Kids Rock, just a reminder that Kids Rock is now open for children's ministry, Sunday school, whatever you call it, nursery through fifth grade. Youth group is not meeting tonight. So you'll have to find something else to do, Don. And we're having a membership class today, right after this service. It's up in the Fellowship Family Life Center, up above. And uh, Julie's motto is, if you come, I'll feed you. So they're going to they're gonna give you a bite to eat, and you want to find out more about Liberty Lake Church, what we're about, what the, our mission, all that goes along with that. Please go up there and check it out. And now... I can't, I don't know. I've known you since kid, as a kid as Becca. Do you go by Rebecca or Becca? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was Swedish. Yeah. So. It'd be Norwegian, really. Oh, but Norwegian. Yeah. Okay. Hey, took that. I need that. Oh. 
because otherwise I'm going to lose where I'm at. So first off, I'm Rebecca. I help out here too. Um, we are having a ladies' fellowship. We're doing a worship night. It's going to be Monday night at 6.30. Bring a snack to share. We will be having a half hour of just fellowship time because that's something that is important. Like, yes, we're going to get together and worship and pray together, but we also, I think as gals, a lot of times we're really busy. We need that fellowship time with each other. So that's our focus. Um, but yeah, come join us, and that will be fun. Secondly... Do we have a slide for the app? Yes. So the church has an app. It's pretty nice. It keeps you updated. It's got a thing in here called newsletter. Since we don't have bulletins right now on Sunday, you can go into the newsletter and see what's coming up, and it'll get updated weekly, and you could get notifications when it gets updated. So you can find the app in any of the app stores, so you can go to the Play Store on Android or the App Store on your iPhone, set it up, enable notifications, and we'll keep you updated on what's going on. So if you have the app already downloaded, raise your hand. That's pretty good. So everybody else, download the app. Please join us for some more worship. Oh, 
Kids, you are dismissed. Glad some of they're they're actually on it, leaving without us. Maybe that'll work. I think I can live with that. Uh, my name is Shane. The sign says, "Please introduce yourself." So. You guys ever feel like you just can't get it right? Like no matter how hard you try, you're you're putting your effort in, and and you're trying to follow what Jesus is telling you to do. You're trying to do all that, and you just can't. You just feel like you can't get it right. None of you. Wow, gonna be a lonely crowd today. I got a feeling that's what the disciples are wrestling with whenever they interact with Jesus, and they're. They're trying to follow what he's saying and, and, and do what he's calling them to do, and then they're exercising that, and then he, he like, uh, nope. And, and it seems like that's what he's doing again today uh, with these guys and, and in the challenges that they're facing. And isn't it interesting? Um, you know what? I missed two verses on my notes, so I'll have, to, I'll have to grab it out of my Bible. Sorry if I did that to you, Ryan. I'm going to do uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 1 through 9. But that's okay, because you guys have your Bibles, right? So you can just open your Bibles right to that passage, and we can read it together. Sally and I have had the privilege of uh, moving, or trying to move. We've been uh, cleaning out our house and 
doing all that, which you guys all know there's no distraction in that life, is there? That's, that's very, very simple and, and very easy to do. And we found ourselves this week in that process and, and um, working really hard and at times being very distracted. And as I was wrestling with the text this week, I, I felt like, man, Lord, this is a, a rough transition that, that Mark is making. Here we're going from the, the end of the age, no one knows the hour, the, the return of the Lord, and then we just shift gears into this particular story, um, talking about the, the uh, high priest and the scribes, and then going into discussion about Mary. It's just this it's a complete shift in direction and, and a transition into um, the last week of our Lord's life as we, he prepares to go to the cross. And so let's jump in and, and read that this morning, and uh, we'll, we'll begin. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It was, not, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do for the, uh, good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before the, uh, beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed the whole, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The very first thing that we see, right, is that the, the high priests and, and the scribes are plotting to kill Jesus. So he, he, he gives us this big picture of the end, the coming of the Lord, the return, the disciples are going to be suffering uh, certain things, and they're not to worry about that because uh, he's got it and, and he's going to come back and our focus should be doing what he's given us to do, go and be about the work that he's given us in anticipating his return. And then Mark just turns this, the, the whole chapter, the whole focus here, and he, he talks about the chief priests and the scribes who are seeking to kill Jesus. And I, I love that that's their intent, and we know why, right? We've been kind of watching how he interacts with them. He hasn't played nice with their religious beliefs. He hasn't, he hasn't been gracious to their views or, or been even gentle with how they are using uh, Scripture wrong and how they're not following him. And so he's been very direct, and, and it's been very acoustic, I think, it, to them at times, to the point that they're seeking to kill him. Interestingly enough, they're concerned about the people's response to that. Why? Because the people actually saw him as a prophet. I, I think they actually really liked the miracles. Right? I mean, what he did is spectacular. Healing the people that he healed, casting out demons, making food last for an entire crowd, for, for thousands of people that he's feeding from a small amount, to the point where he's raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a big one. And that's who the crowds are seeing, and that's who we know that Jesus has been described as by his disciples, and yet the, the priests and the scribes are trying to kill him. They want to kill him. They're plotting. They're trying to figure out a way to do this. 
One of the reasons they fear the crowd, and I want to just, as part of the culture of the time, I don't think they were as worried about them really rioting as much as losing the support of the people. And they also had to consider Rome, right? Because Rome was actually managing all of that. And if the people got out of hand, the, the Roman soldiers would come in and put whatever out of hand that was happening in hand. They would, they would squash that because you can't have rioting. And that's a big, serious problem. In fact, we'll see that later on when Pilate is involved with this whole process as the people begin to riot um, and he acquiesces to their commands. So here we have the chief priests and scribes in, in Jesus' life and challenging uh, the, the, the scope. I was wrestling with this this week going, man, Lord, how is it that Jesus loved people? How did he exercise this love that he's, exper- that he's demonstrating in, in this process? Um, and we're going we're gonna to see his disciples in just a minute, but what began to, to grab my heart is that, that we're called to love people in this way, even when, even when we disagree with them, even when, even when we have a conflict with them. Here Jesus has people trying to kill him, and according to Scripture, it says that he loved the world and gave his life for them that he desires that all should be saved. And it's interesting, in, uh, the, I'm reading through, uh, chronologically, I'm reading through the Old Testament right now, and I'm in Ezekiel. It's an exciting book. It'd be good to get in there and read some of it. But it's very interesting, if you go into Ezekiel chapter 33, and you read that chapter, you'll actually see the Lord say, He does not delight in punishing the wicked. It's not His delight to bring judgment on those who are not saved. That is not, he doesn't delight in it. He desires for them to repent and change. That's the heart of Jesus. And here he is preparing to go to the cross, and these people are plotting to kill him. His disciples are missing it, and he still goes. What a profound moment. I, at one point, I thought, Lord, I, I probably need to confess for failing to love like you do. I have a hard time loving my bride like he's called me to love my bride, and she's for me. She is. <laughs> a little concerned about your guys' support of that. Huh, is there something I don't know? Mark jumps right into this, this meeting at Bethany. So we have this, con- it's, it's an interesting contrast. We go from a group of people who are designed, desiring to kill Jesus secretly to a meeting with his disciples where, where extravagant worship of him happens. Even the, to the dismay of his disciples. Did you, did you see that? Uh, it's interesting. Let me, let me back up just a second. What's interesting about this story is that in both Matthew and Mark's gospel, you actually don't get to really see who's in this crowd. They don't describe for you who's all at the meeting. They just tell us it's in Bethany, give us some time frame, and they reference him being anointed by a very costly uh, a, a perfume or ointment, and that this woman does that. Um, in John's account, you actually see some of the details of this event, which I thought it was very interesting. Luke doesn't even mention it. He goes right from the chiefs and, and uh, high priests and the scribes trying to kill Jesus to uh, uh, Judas betraying him. He skips the whole story. But in looking at the Gospel of John, it's interesting the detail that we actually see from John about this account. John chapter 12, verse 1. 
It says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus, uh, it describes that, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with a fragrant perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used, uh, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always will have with you but you do not always have me. Now, one of the things that I do when I see a story like that and I'm looking at the accounts, I'm like, why does Mark not give us some of that information? Why, why is that withheld? And I think there may be a reason, mostly pointing at who the focus of the worship is, as opposed to seeing who it is that is doing the worship. In fact, if you look at the end of Mark, you'll see that he specifically t- tells the disciples that this woman's act, that this, this act of hers, is going to be shared every time the gospel is shared throughout the world. Uh, it'll be done in me- memory of her. So here, her action, this act of worship, is going to be remembered with the gospel throughout the whole world. That's an interesting uh, honor to have. And yet Mark doesn't tell us who it is. I think that's kind of interesting. Anybody get a little riled up at Judas? Hold on, we'll talk about him next week. Why did Jesus pick him? Anyway, that's next week. We'll get on to that. It just bothers me. So what is this woman? And we're gonna we're gonna, for the sake of, of confusion, I'm gonna call her Mary. And, and so just because it, it, it looks like it's the same interactions, it's the same account that's happening right about this time. And so I'm going to call her Mary today. But what does she bring? What does she actually lavish on Jesus? It's, it's this perfume or this flask of pure nard that they believe was equivalent to about a year's wages. Many, many of you have probably heard that. It's very costly, very expensive. Um, it would have been something, possibly was an heirloom that was passed down from family or an inheritance or something along that line. Not really sure how she has it, but we know that she has it, and it's very expensive to the point where the disciples notice it, right? Yes. It's a pretty significant thing. That they're like, Hey, the, one of the things that I love about the text and how uh, it worked um, is that this, he uses the same word here, and we'll look at it at the end, um, that she did what she could, but it points out this picture of, of the cost of this, the expense 
of this act of worship. And our tendency, I think, at times for me is to get wrapped up in, in how amazing that was, but that really wasn't the point of the worship. It, it was, in fact, Jesus doesn't really point out that. He points out that, that she's preparing him for burial. He's looking at the, the coming truth, the reality that he's been trying to share for his, with his disciples this entire time, which is his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, which is the great uh, mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians, this idea of the church and, and Jesus becoming uh, um, brought together in this, the holy matrimony of marriage and him redeeming us and doing all of those things. And Jesus is pointing at his disciples there, and they're looking at the cost of the gift. And what's interesting is that just before this, in fact, you'll, we can, we'll see a note of it in Luke 21, which hold, if you go there, hold that in your Bible because we're going to go back there and finish up with this. But in Luke 21, verse 3, we actually see Jesus referencing, remember the widow that we talked about? I don't remember if it was a month ago or two months ago, but the, the, the widow's offering, the two coins that she drops in. Jesus in Luke responds to that, and he says in Luke uh, chapter 21, verse 3, he said, truly I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all of them. She's given more than all of them, even though her gift was very, very, very small. And one of the words that he uses in that text at the, at the very end of this, she's, it says that she gave all. She gave everything she had, all that she could possess. Well, this word, the root word that is used here, actually, when, when the text says that she did what she could, the beginning of verse 8, is from the same Greek word, but it has a little bit different meaning. It means that it's all that she had in her possession or all that she had available to her at that point. Two totally different gifts, right? One was two coins. One was a year's worth of wages. One was a day's wage, possibly, and the other was an entire year's wages. And what was Jesus' response to that? He says in verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done a beautiful thing to me. This act of worship that she lavishes upon Jesus. He again references, this is a, a pointing towards his burial, his death, which we all know the disciples are still struggling to put their head around, right? They cannot fathom what he's talking about. This idea of giving, um, I don't know why it's so hard for us to, to, to get a hold of this. Maybe it's because we deal with money and possessions and, and earthly things, but I think sometimes it's hard for us to, to grasp this idea of generous giving that we see in the text and how Jesus praises both of them, even though they're completely different. And we know he looks at the heart, right? Yes, we know he looks at the heart. So for us, we're like, well, that's okay. He's looking at the heart. Yeah, he's looking at the heart. And so we should be very careful to be looking at the heart in our own giving then, correct? That, that, that really is how we should approach this idea of giving. And if we look back at, uh, let's just take a minute. This is kind of a rabbit trail, but I, 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 hope it, I hope it connects with you as it did with me this week. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 5. We're going to read verses 5 and 7 and, and just a couple more verses here in Paul's writing about giving. 
He's talking about this generosity of the church at this time that's giving out of their poverty, and it's overflowed into a wealth of generosity that he's experiencing in his ministry. He's, he's actually singing the praises of a church that is poor, that is given ex- exceedingly above what their financial capacity was. So they're giving much more like probably the widow at this point in time and in, in, in how we would have view that. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave of themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So there's, there was this recognition that Paul had that the first they gave themselves to the Lord. They, they recognized that everything that they had, their life and all of their goods was his. And so they willingly gave themselves to the Lord. And then as he directed them, they gave. And out of that, he experienced their abundance. And he specifically points out this amazing uh, reality in their spiritual life, not directly in their giving in verse 7 of the same passage, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in speech, or excuse me, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace. Also, here's Paul referencing this amazing giving of this church, this transformational, generous, abundant giving that he's experiencing from them. He continues to encourage them in verse 12, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12. He says this, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul's referencing this. I love it when, when we speak of fairness, right? How many of you guys believe life's fair? It doesn't take us very long to figure that out, right, as kids? It's just not, and it's difficult. But Paul's referencing the behavior of the church and how God would use them to supply the needs of people. And he specifically is acknowledging that here in this church, one church is being used to take care for their needs because of their abundance now, and God's going to use the other church to care for them. He sees that as being a, a relational process that's happening in the kingdom of God, directed by God, and ex, uh, actually used in caring for his people. And what I love is that he references the Israelites coming out of the wilderness being cared for by God, right? The, 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 the end of that text is actually a quote out of Genesis, or the Exodus, excuse me. Uh, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. It was when they were gathering the manna, and they would gather it up, and there was always just enough. And if they gathered too much, it wasn't there in the morning. If they didn't gather enough, they had, it, it, it made it. it. It actually covered their needs. This idea of worship and giving and, and, and what Paul's recognizing is that when, when we as his church, when our focus is on him, when our sustenance and our provision is based in him and in him alone, we lack nothing. We have what we need and we have the capacity by his direction, I believe, to care for others and to help provide for their needs. And God will use us in that way. It is supernatural when God's directing it. He finishes up this whole entire discussion 
uh, it wraps up the giving portion of this, I believe, very well in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 7. And he says this, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. As we think about what it means to give in, in, in this process, you know, sometimes I think we read that passage and we think, well, the best thing is to give a lot. Well, is that true? Did, what did Jesus say about the, the woman who gave two coins? She gave more than everybody else. Why? Because she gave from a heart of surrender and dependence. And so it's not a matter of how much. It's a matter of what the heart is. Why do we give? And I think it's important to recognize as Mary brings this gift to the Lord, she's being led by the Spirit to do it, and Jesus acknowledges that and says, look, she's preparing me for my burial beforehand. This is a beautiful thing that has happened to me. Don't you guys just love the disciples? Don't you just love them? If you haven't been encouraged recently about being a goofball or a screw-up, you got the disciples to help us. I love this because, now, and again, you guys, there's no text in this that's directing me to this thought, but my guess is, this is what I'm thinking, is that they're sitting around the table, or laying around the table, they're eating, however they're doing that, and Mary comes in and does this, this anointment of Jesus. Judas is a little bit put off, and he leans over to, to somebody, probably not Peter, James, or John, because they're probably close to Jesus at that time, so it was probably one of the others. We're just going to give them a pass today. He leans over and goes, can you believe what just happened here? What do you mean, Judas? Do you know how much that's worth? Well, yeah, that's pretty expensive. Do you know what we could have done for, G for, for the kingdom with that money? Do you realize how much we could have given to the poor? Well, yeah. What was she thinking? And the conversation begins. And pretty soon they're riled up enough that they're actually going to help Jesus educate him on giving to the poor. You see what happens in this text? Jesus, hey, 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 you shouldn't be letting her waste that stuff on you. What are you thinking? We've got more important spiritual things to do. Do you see it? I mean, maybe I'm missing it. But my guess is that the guys were actually trying to help Jesus do it better. He, he's the one that taught him to care for the poor. He's the one that came and redefined the whole idea of spiritually walking with God. He's the one that actually took him to the law and said things like, if you think about a woman to lust after you've committed adultery, if you hate your brother, you're committing murder. You're guilty of murder. He redefined the law for them, and here they are going, hey, 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 hey. We could, that could be used to care for the poor. Aren't we like that? Isn't that just our nature? To try and help God do it better? To see things we don't like and going, hey, did you notice that? I don't think that was a very good idea. Isn't that not the, the character of our human hearts? I do it. Easy for me to get excited about something and then begin to talk amongst ourselves and ultimately end up scolding someone openly. And I just wonder if the disciples were thinking, 
yeah, Jesus is going to be impressed with this. We'll, we'll, we'll get this straightened out. We'll get all this worked out. And I'm going to show Jesus how much I love the poor. Maybe I can sit in James' spot next week. Or maybe we'll get Peter out of that leadership role, and I can be in there. I love the fact that you don't see Peter even talking at this point. I'm guessing he was. And what does Jesus do? Here the guys have gotten worked up. They've got their, they've got their position figured out. They're going to set things right. And what does Jesus do? He just shuts them down. Stop. Stop. What are you doing? What does he say to him? Verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. Which I wonder if that was a little bit of an indictment. You could be doing good for the poor whenever. Whenever you want to. He says, for you will always have the poor. Whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. What an amazing picture of, of Jesus accepting this worship with his eyes focused on what was coming and still walking in obedience. Sometimes I think that when, when we get confused, when we get to the point where we're actually turning on one another and, and, and actually attacking and, and, and scolding one another, it's because we've gotten our eyes completely off of Jesus. We've lost complete the focus on what He has us here to do. Last week we read about it, right? He, he gave us this illustration of this, this master who leaves a house and he leaves his servants in charge of the areas that they have, each with their work. And he says, go and do that. I think one of the greatest challenges, and it's probably probably just because of the culture that we've defined in our church where we've made Sunday morning the point of worship. We've made it the point of the whole week of the church. And so how many of us can really be actively involved in the ministry of the church? Y'all want to get up and preach? Anybody else want to? I mean, can we all get up and do everything at all? We can't do it at the same time. It'd be complete chaos. In this time frame, we just don't have the time for everybody to exercise their gifts. And how many, how many of the gifts of service are really available on a Sunday morning? How many of the gifts of encouragement and, and caring for people and mercy and those things are really available on Sunday morning? How many of you want to come in and just honestly be open and say, my week's a disaster, I need somebody to cry with me today? We're not going to care for one another on a Sunday morning, and I think we've created a, a, an ideal of church that says if you're not involved on Sunday morning, you're not in ministry. If you're not involved in doing something in the service or something in the weekly pre preparation of the service, you're not really involved in ministry, and therefore you're subjugated to some kind of lower class of individual. When the disciples looked at Mary, what did they see? Somebody below them. Somebody not as important as them. I think they had no problem scolding her at that moment. They were convinced of their value as being that of next to the new king. 
right? We know that the disciples had that discussion because they argued amongst themselves about it. Hey, Jesus, when you get up there, you want to put me at your right hand and me at your left? And the other guys were angry about it. What is it that we bring? What is it that we give? What is it that we have to worship the king with? Jesus defends Mary's worship, and I think he points out an incredibly valuable piece. She did what she could. With what was in her possession, she gave it all. What do you have to give to Jesus? What is it that you could do? I want to encourage you, it shouldn't be what I can do. Why would it be? That would make no sense. He's given me a job to do. If you got two people doing the same job, what do you have? An argument. Right? Just do that at your house. I had a good friend of mine. He'd been married for 50 plus years. He came into church one Sunday morning. He goes, well, my bride and I had a fight yesterday. I'm like, after 50 plus years of marriage, you guys are having a fight? He goes, yep, you're going to love what it was about. Okay, tell me. Vacuuming. <laughs> what? goes, yep, she didn't like how I was vacuuming. I vacuum every Saturday, and I'm helping her out, and she didn't feel like I was doing it the right way. She was redirecting how I was, and they got in a fight over vacuuming. How is that possible? Two people doing the same job. Having different opinions of how it's supposed to get done, but two people doing the same job. Why would God have the church function the same way? I believe that when we think about this idea of giving what we have, doing what we can, we really should, I want to remind us of his passion and his love for the small things. Luke 21, I hope you kept your Bible in there. If you didn't, jump back there. Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. Look at what Jesus says about this widow's offering in Luke 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he said to a poor widow, or he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contribute out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It is not the price of what you give. It is not even how man values what you give. I believe it is the heart behind what you give. And when we give what we can, whatever it is that is in our possession, whatever is available to us, when we give what we can and we give it with a heart of humility and a heart of worship, God accepts that and he can use it for great things, regardless of what it is. Regardless of what it is, we have got such a warped idea of what it means to worship God. Have we sang enough songs? Have we read enough scripture? Have we acted humble enough this week? Acted humble enough this week? Have we given to the poor? What is it that has defined our acts of worship? Have you, are you at church on Sunday? What is it that defines that for you and for me? It sure seems like Jesus is looking at the heart. 
And he doesn't want from you what he wants from me in worship. So for the sake of the kingdom, don't try and be like me. Don't follow me. Don't follow elders. Don't follow another man. Follow Jesus. What a, what a phenomenal time. You know, the disciples sat in fear. We're going to see this as we go through. They sat terrified in a room, scared to death. The girls go back to the, go back to the grave. Just deal with that for a bit. They're the ones that go back when it's dangerous to go out and be associated with Jesus. They're the ones that go back to the grave. The guys are sitting in the room scared to death. When the Spirit of God is given to them, what happens? They go out and give their lives and change the world. Are you waiting for that? I got to tell you, if you're a believer, you already have it. We're, we're promised the indwelt presence of God as His children, so why aren't we out changing the world? I think far too often it's because we're focused on the here and now. We're focused on the things right in front of us. We're missing the big picture. Jesus had His disciples sitting in that room. He was preparing them for the Passover, and what they got distracted by was the value of the ointment from Mary that was put on Him to prepare Him for burial. They missed what he was telling them. They missed the heart of the worshiper at that moment. They missed how Jesus had received it. I love the fact that he's sitting there accepting it, and they have enough time to have a discussion amongst themselves to get riled up and angry about it. If it was a problem, wouldn't Jesus have stopped it? That's his pattern. Anytime they start saying something goofy, he puts them right in their place, right? Get thee behind me, Satan. He doesn't have a problem with stopping stuff that's inappropriate. And he doesn't do that with them, with her. And yet the guys are riled up. She did what she could. And it was a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. What is it that God's calling us to do in the church today? I truly believe that there's a, a need for the church to point to a Savior. There's a need for the church to live Lives filled with hope and joy in the midst of a culture that is devastatingly dis dying and, and, and disruptive and confused. The church should be the place that presents hope and joy, not fear and anxiety and anger. I get it. I have it. But my eyes should be drawn back to Him. My hope should come back to Him. And in that posture, I can give all that I can, and He can use it for His glory. What is it that you can give? What do you have? According to Jesus, it's priceless in His hands. It's priceless for the use of His kingdom. Father, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your faithfulness. Lord, I thank you that you don't actually have a quota sheet for us. And at the same time that I'm glad you don't have a quota sheet, it's a little terrifying that you just look at the heart. Because as I watch my own heart climb and fall at times in attitude and perspective, I realize how true. Jeremiah was when he says that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
So Lord, I would ask that even as we consider what it means to give all that we have, to give what we can this week, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would cleanse our hearts, that you would lead us and guide us in all that you do, that we would bring glory to you alone, and it would not be of our own, but it would be yours and yours alone that you would bring hope and joy into the presence and the life of the church. Regardless of the culture, regardless of our circumstances, we live in eternal eternal hope. We live in that hope. Because, Lord Jesus, you have overcome the world. You have conquered death. And you sit at the right hand of the Father as our intercessory, as our high priest. And for that, I am grateful. Father, guide us this week and give us, uh, help us in our unbelief, help us in our obedience, convict our lives where we're, where we're not following you, and teach us how to love one another as you've called us to do in your name. Amen. Please join us as we get ready to head out for the week.
care until we meet again.